Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation?" Amen. This is God's word. It is so powerful just to sit under the reading of God's word. And there's a part of me who sometimes uh, is tempted just to stop right here and just let the word of God, you know, does its effect on us Um, because it's uh, it's just a powerful thing. So as mentioned before, today we are starting a new series called Greater Than. 
which focuses on the book of Hebrews. And during the next few weeks, you'll hear from different pastors, uh, from different passages that we've chosen carefully. And, uh, and my hope is that you will be encouraged by the diving into the scriptures and that you will get a lot out of it uh, to make it applicable for your life, life-changing. And uh, God helps us uh, in that. Several years ago, there was this guy in my youth group named Yan. Yan. And um, I remember very clearly till this day a conversation that I was having with him after a meeting was over. We were walking out of a church all the way back to our cars in the parking lot. And Yan had been a, a very enthusiastic Christian for a few months. His parents were Christian. And he was excited about Jesus, and he had come to, uh, with us to different youth camps and conferences. But for a few weeks, he had stopped being really um, uh, regular and consistent uh, in attending meetings and being consistent in really uh, following Jesus. And I could sense that something was really dying inside of him, and I was really intrigued by that, and I was uh, saddened by the state of his heart. And so I asked him on that parking lot in front of our cars, uh, Jan, I, I'd like to know, like, what's, what's going on in your life right now? Why don't you want to keep on following Jesus the way you were doing it before? And his answer marked me and has really left something kind of um, strange in my heart. And what he said was, that he felt like God was not manifesting himself to him like he was to other Christians. He felt left out. He would go to these youth conferences and camps, and he felt like God was moving in people's lives, but he was not moving the same way in his own personal life. And feeling kind of left out, feeling like there was just no experience of God in his life, he, it was just time for him to just do something else. And so for... Uh, a few weeks and months after that, he started becoming more and more inconsistent, and, and then one day he just disappeared, and I just stayed in touch with him through writing letters, and uh, he had never really answered me, and then I found out that basically he had chosen a different way. There was this other guy named William. William uh, had been invited to the youth group uh, at the church I was interning at in Paris, and William had not grown up in a Christian home, had not been, been brought up in, a, in the faith and had no knowledge about Jesus and Christianity. And, and keep in mind that in France, secularism is way more predominant than Christianity. So William showed up in our meetings and, and was very curious, very thirsty and hungry to know more about Jesus and the Bible. And he became so open to receive that faith. And it was incredible for us as a youth group to watch what God was doing in his life. I could, I could see him attending every single meeting possible that was going on in the church life. He would ask questions. He would pray with us. He would worship with us. And uh, it was really incredible to witness that. And then one day, uh, it was one of those meetings in the evening, and his parents, who were not Christians, came to pick him up towards the end of the meeting and they sneaked in the back and I happened to be in the back and I could see that his parents were really bothered by the meeting and what they were hearing. Um, I think they were atheists and so um, just before the meeting ended, they kind of pulled William aside and said, William, what are you doing here? Like, are you listening to what these people are saying? They're so naive. Like, you're, you know better than that. You're smarter than them. Why are you just, why do you stick with them? Come on, and, and I was in the midst of a conversation hearing that, 
And I, I tried to interfere and, and objected by saying to his mom, I'm sorry, but I, I've been a Christian for a few years and I really don't think I'm naive. I've, I've taken the time to study the faith and I know that what I believe in is real. I've experienced it. It makes sense to me and to many others. And uh, I, William experienced such a, a powerful opposition from his parents from that day on and they really tried to drag him out of church life and youth group, and, and from that moment on, I saw him less and less, and then he became um, really more and more absent, and um, I found out later, uh, because I lost track of him, that he had joined the army, and then had fallen in love, and then he basically left the faith. I'm telling you these two stories because they really marked me, but they represent a real challenge that many young Christians, and not just young Christians, but Christians in general face today, uh, that is to have a great start in the faith, have a great uh, experience, first experience with Jesus, where you, you feel the love, you feel the energy, you feel like a certain atmosphere that's bringing you up, but then something else come up, something that you feel like is better, and a temptation, maybe for a young girl is falling in love with a guy, for a guy is falling in love with a girl. In youth groups, it's often the case. Uh, that's how it starts, and then you just don't see them anymore. And then we start drifting away and, and walking away from the faith. And I've seen so many people experiencing the same thing. But I want to draw a parallel to the book of Hebrews because as we are studying that book together, we need to realize that the audience that the author was writing to were experiencing the same temptation that is to drift away, to walk away from the faith because something else better was really at hand. And um, we do not know who wrote the book. Some people think that it was Paul, some Barnabas, some Apollos. It doesn't really matter to us today, um, but the author was really concerned about the spiritual state of those uh, Christians. Now, the book was written around 64 um, AD, and um, most likely we know that the, um, the uh, audience was a, a house church in Rome made of uh, Jewish Christians who had had many, many years of practice in the Jewish faith, in the Torah. And as they had experienced salvation, they were starting to face persecution. As you know, first century Christianity is marked by intense persecution. And as they were facing opposition in their faith, the temptation for them was to go back to their previous ways, their previous lifestyle of being just Jewish and enjoying the safety and the protection of the empire because there were no threats to the empire by being Jewish, but they were a threat to the empire by declaring Jesus is Lord. And so the author doesn't want that to happen for them, to drift away. So he is writing this letter that is really kind of peculiar in the sense that it's not the typical letter that you find in the New Testament where you have an author that is uh, very um, you know, personal who will refer, refer to different uh, interactions that he's had with the audience and, um, and there's a lot of different stories that you can pick up on. This one, this letter of Hebrews is more an expose or a dissertation about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, how Jesus is greater than anything else. And like uh, Pastor Brian mentioned during worship, it's just a big sermon on Jesus, basically. That is a very um, good way to simplify it and make it clear for us. 
So he's encouraging this community to press on in the Christian faith amid persecution. Now we know that even the people he's writing to were imprisoned sometimes for their faith. We know that they were really risking their life for just wanting to know Jesus and, and walking with him. So it's, it's no, it was no joke for them to be a Christian. It is hard sometimes for us in our Western world, in our context, to make sense of all these letters that we read in the New Testament because we want to read them through the lens of our own Western, uh, American, comfortable mentality. And we need to be able to take a step back because so much of the context of the uh, first century Christianity is persecution. And it is not the case for us. You may be ridiculed for your faith, or you may have uh, sometimes to make tough choices, moral choices, but our lives are not at stake because we want to follow Jesus today. But that was the case for them. Now, the book is broken down into five major sections. There's one big introduction that elevates Jesus in the first chapter, and then it's followed by really four segments uh, that focuses on the following elements. Uh, chapter one and two cover the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels and the Torah. Then in chapter three and four, it covers the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses and the promised land. Chapter five and seven, is about Jesus being greater than the priest and Melchizedek. And if you don't know who Melchizedek is, and you can look it up, <laughs> and you'll get to hear from one of our pastors about who this guy was. And chapter 8 and 10 is about Jesus being greater than the sacrifices and the, the old covenant. And then the author ends with chapter 11 to 13 by focusing on the great models and heroes of the faith and how we can draw some applications for our lives today. Now, I want to focus today on chapter 1, and the way we're going to actually work uh, together today is by going backwards. So we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 3, and working our way backwards all the way to verse 3 of chapter 1. So I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the danger of neglect, the call to pay attention, and the power of beholding. The danger of neglect, the call to pay attention, and the power of beholding. One of the main problems that's addressed in this letter is the danger of neglecting such a great salvation. We read this verse in chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, these Christians had a great start. They even resisted sins. They visited people in prison. They were imprisoned themselves. And the temptation was to avoid persecution by returning to their Jewish practice, by choosing the status quo. They knew that it would be a safer option. Anybody could understand why it would be so tempting for them when your life is at stake to go back to a, a more comfortable and safest way of life. And you see, it's a different context for us today, but the danger of neglect remains we still face that same danger, danger. This is what happens when you start experiencing difficulties in your young Christian years. You know, you have, a, 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 again, a good start, and uh, you've just experienced blessings after blessings and answers to prayers, but then something comes up. It's a, tempta a specific temptation or a trial, or maybe it's a health challenge or a relationship challenge, 
or a financial difficulty, and then you start questioning your faith. Is this thing real? Or maybe your life becomes so busy that it feels like there's no room left for God. I've met people over the years that made me feel like sometimes they were just so busy that they had no time for God, which is really a a kind of a crazy concept, right? But I believe that for us today, this danger of neglect comes in the form of slowly drifting away, kind of similar to stopping watering a plant, like any plants that I've ever had in my own home, or stopping to maintain your house and taking care of your yard. You know what happens when you don't do yard work, you know, um, thorns and weeds and grow and it doesn't look that great. Or maybe stopping to uh, nurture your relationship with your spouse by having date nights or quality conversations. Or maybe stopping to spend quality time with your children and investing into their lives in a very real, tangible way. The reality is that love can die. Relationships can die if they're not nurtured, if they're not fed properly. And this is how we drift away from the faith. We stop doing something on a consistent basis. I want to tell you that, unfortunately, your flame for Jesus can be tamed. Your flame for Jesus can die. Jesus can easily become something you do, a hobby instead of being your end goal. And that's frightening. That's really scary. The main idea here is that you and I do not drift away by accident. It just doesn't happen overnight. We don't wake up one morning with our mind made up. Today is the day I'm going to say bye-bye to Jesus. I'm going to say goodbye to him. I'm going to walk away from the faith. I've had enough. It's too much for me. No, it doesn't happen this way. It's a slow process of drifting away, one small decision after another one, and then suddenly it creates this new reality in our lives where Jesus is not present anymore. You see, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the way they come into our lives is not by the main entrance door, by the big door with a big signpost. They often come through the back door in a very sneaky way. They integrate themselves by you know, whispering little lies or uh, encouraging us to uh, make compromises here and there. And then sooner or later, we, we realize something has died, like something is not right with us. I remember talking to a friend one day when I was in Australia. He was giving me a ride home. I really... Uh, awesome friend that was such a great father, and um, I was asking him, how do you spend time with God? How do you, how do, you do this thing? And he told me, like, every day when he would um, commute to go to work, which was a, quite a long ride, he would just pray and, in the car and just blast worship in his car and just have an awesome, fun time with Jesus. And he said something that I never forgot, uh, is that he realized at one point he was not doing this because his life was quite busy with kids and all that, so it was challenging for him to have the dedicated time for God. But he, he, he had a long season in his life where he kind of stopped doing this, and he said, man, one day I just woke up and I realized I just had no passion for Jesus anymore. Just, it, just, it was gone, like something had died in me. And he didn't want to get back to that place, so he had to find creative ways to, to you know, feed that flame. And that's the reality, you know, when we, you stop caring for this great salvation that we received, one day the tragedy is we could really wake up with realizing something has died. Like it's, I just, God seems so far away and I just don't know how to, 
to get back into that thing. So those three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, do want to sneak into your life uh, with details. And it's the slow process. I want to read uh, a passage from the book uh, of C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read that book, it's an awesome read. It's basically a Christian fiction book about a mentor demon who is teaching a young demon who is beginning in his job, in his, uh, you know, I guess vocation, on how to turn people away from the faith when they had a good start. And here's what the mentor demon says at one point. Quote, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without certain turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I want to emphasize that sentence. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Over time, things built over time. And you see, I, I want to think about this word great salvation in a way that refers to our relationship with God because salvation is way more than a, a, a theological transaction that we've made with God. You know, it's really the whole life dedicated to God in, in, in relating to Him through our whole body, mind, spirit, soul when we interact with Him. But anything that will uh, attack this relationship with God is going to come through little details. How do we neglect such a great salvation today? in our spiritual life, where I think there are seven ways we do that. First, we do that by settling for a less vibrant Christian life. And I apologize if you don't have the words on the screen, but I'm just going to try to read it slowly and carefully. We neglect such a great salvation by settling for a less vibrant Christian life. We accept the minimum required just to make it through. A little bit of Bible here, a little bit of podcast there, a little bit of K-love in the car, and it's going to help me get through the week until Sunday. And then we are okay just to have enough to kind of feel God, to kind of feel like things are going okay, but I'm, I'm a good person, not too much guilt in my life. I can get by. But that's a really poor way to view the Christian life, but it's a way also to neglect the salvation, this great salvation we've received. Secondly, we neglect this gift by making compromises. We make excuses. We uh, accept to maybe watch things we should not watch because a lot of people watch them. This movie, I, I mean, anybody's told me about this movie. It's a great movie. The plot is great. The images, not so good, but it's a great plot. And then we just, you know, one compromise after another compromise, and we just accept these things as part of our lifestyle. Third, we do that by ignoring God's voice, especially in the details. I'm sure all of you have experienced at times during your day where you feel like God is whispering something to you or giving you a little 
push for something, you know, maybe it's a, an impulse to uh, do a special tour to serve your wife or serve your husband or to help your kids or help someone in need or to say no to someone or yes to someone else. And, and when you ignore all these impulses from God and his voice over time, that creates also neglect. Fourth, by believing that the grass is greener on the other side. Have you ever experienced this kind of jealousy that creeps in where you look at people who don't know God and don't want to do anything with Jesus, but they have an awesome life? You look at them and they're prosperous, they're having fun, they're happy, they're healthy, they have a great family, they have a good house. You're like, man, what's, what's wrong with my life? <laughs> I got Jesus and they don't and it's, it's really going good for them. Maybe I should kind of question what's going on with me. And when you start believing that the grass is greener on the other side this way, this is a dangerous road. And I encourage you to read Psalm 73 because it, it really depicts this um, author, uh, this worshiper who was coveting the um, lifestyle of people who don't want to do anything with God. And then he realized towards the end of the psalm, he mentions that these people really don't live with an eternal perspective. And what makes really the difference for us is the eternal perspective. Um, fifth, we neglect this gift by not practicing the spiritual disciplines. And I do not need to extend on that. You know what those spiritual disciplines are in your own personal life, you know, like reading the scriptures and meditating on them, and you're being part of a community of faith and uh, and praying, and fasting, and uh, silence, and solitude, and all these things are so important, but by neglecting them, and, and, and giving ourselves again excuses for not doing them, we really allow ourselves to go on a slippery road, um, you know, because one day of missing this leads to another day, and another day leads to a week, and then a week leads to a month, and then you're like, I haven't read my Bible in a very long time, and um, there's a great danger there. Then, um, sixth, we also neglect this beautiful gift by believing the wrong promises. You see, the world, the flesh, and the devil will give you promises. Oh, and they look very appealing. Like you're going to feel good, you're going to feel great once you bite into that thing. But we know that all those promises are empty and they won't lead you to life. And lastly, we neglect this great salvation by allowing the world's voice to be louder than God's voice. Now, I want you to picture a fish trying to swim against the current. It is hard. It's challenging. It's got to use all its you know, muscles and you know, his tail in a, in a very particular way to be able to swim against the current. And so much of our lives as Christians and disciples of Jesus are really lived uh, in a countercultural way where we are trying to, like this fish, you know, swim against the current. And we, it can be tiring to always have to fight opposition and to feel like we're always at odd with uh, the people surrounding us, with the world, with its standards. And sometimes there's this temptation to want to take a break of always fighting for our faith. And this is where the danger happens. But there is a solution for us to encourage us to persevere. And... Um, the author of Hebrews is mentioning in chapter 2, and that's my second point, it's by paying attention to what God has done, what God has spoken, 
that we find remedy to avoid this neglect. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. So that's the solution. If we do not want to drift away, we need to pay close attention. The importance of paying attention. Pay attention to what? Well, clearly it refers to, because it's therefore, to the revelation of the Son of God. The Son of God as, uh, as greater than angels and the prophets. You see, God has spoken to us by His Son. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you feel like God has never spoken to you. Well, can I say that God has spoken to you? <laughs> he has spoken to you right here. He has spoken to you by revealing Jesus Christ to you personally, to the world. Everything is right here in front of our eyes. You see, this, this idea that there is a progressive revelation in scriptures. God has revealed himself to Abraham by calling him out, calling him to form a nation, and then by revealing himself to Moses and giving Moses and the people of Israel the covenant, and then by reinforcing that covenant through the prophets, and then finally by sending Jesus as the final fulfillment of all things. That's the progressive revelation leading to the final revelation. Now imagine the people of Israel being at the bottom of a mountain and, and seeing smoke and, and almost being in the middle of an earthquake where God is coming down, appearing to the people and speaking loudly, Hear, O Israel! I'm about to reveal something very, very important to you. You need to pay attention. Hear, O Israel! And that's the same calling that the author of Hebrews is wanting to address to his audience. Hear, O Hebrews, you are in front of the final revelation of the Son of God. And for these Jewish Christians who were well-versed in the Old Testament laws, he's saying to them, everything you've heard before in the Old Covenant through the angels is now imperfect compared to the perfection of a revelation of the Son of God. Therefore, you need to pay attention. And what's interesting is when you read the chapter 1 of Hebrews, you have seven quotations of the Old Testament. Five are taken from the Psalms, one from the former prophets, and one from the Torah. And all these quotes are really there to encourage them to understand that throughout scriptures, even in the Old Covenant, Jesus was there. Jesus was in the Father's heart. Jesus was the ultimate plan. And if they pay attention to the Old Testament, all this points to the final revelation of Jesus Christ. I love what he says in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus has inherited a name more excellent than the angels. A name. The name in the Hebrew uh, concept is really the identity. He has this identity this personhood that is more excellent than the angels. And keep in mind that the people he's writing to grew up in the Jewish faith. They knew all these passages really well. They knew how powerful God had, how powerfully God had spoken through the angels, through theophanies. But here they have someone who is more excellent. I want to encourage you to consider the excellency of Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus, God has showed the world, everything that needed to be seen, his birth, life, death, and resurrection, all that we needed to see 
in order to make up our mind about the faith. And sometimes, you know, we meet people who want to have signs and wonders in order for them to really decide if they want to accept Jesus or not. I want to remind ourselves this morning that we have everything. We have all the signs and wonders in the scriptures. It does not mean that we should not have signs and wonders today. They are there to confirm the presence of the kingdom. And we see, we see how Jesus operated in that same mindset of you know, the power of the spirit to tell people the kingdom has come. God is here. There's a new reality and, and miracles happen. But in the scriptures, as we take the time to pay attention, we have everything we need to know to respond positively to this call to become a disciple of Jesus. So it begs the question for us today, why looking for more signs when we have everything right here? And you feel, if you feel like you're drifting away, can I encourage you, can I plead with you, pay attention. Pay attention to what's right there in front of your eyes. Now how can we respond to that? How do we avoid neglecting salvation? How can we pay attention in a way that's really healthy for us and keeping us on track? Um, I want to read that verse in chapter th- uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 where it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Such a wonderful verse. And what's what this verse is doing is that it's helping us to behold. You see, there's power in beholding. Beholding is this act where you stop and you stay in awe and you're holding dearly truths that will impact your life and change your heart. Uh, Author Strand Coleman, who just released a book called Beholding, uh, gives that definition of beholding. Beholding is a conscious decision to enjoy the person of God and others by simply being with them despite or without benefits. It means to not seek to glean anything from others but hopes to simply be in the midst of them for their own inherent worth. That's what beholding is. You consider the worth of one person, one being, and you just worship, you gaze upon. So it's about holding truths. And we had those truths in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the radiance of God's glory. Just like the sun has rays of light, and as, as you really gaze upon Jesus, you are gazing upon the, the light rays that are coming out of the sun. And he's the imprint, like uh, a wax, you know, from the stamp, from the printer. This is how Jesus is. He is the exact repre- representation of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. You see his image. You see his character and everything that needs to be revealed. But it's not just about holding all these truths, because it's great to have theological insights. Sometimes we can be addicted to always wanting to have theological insights, but it has to make its way into our hearts to transform us. It's about letting the Spirit of God using these truths and making it real for us. At this point, I'm just going to ask the uh, worship band to come up, please. So the key for you and I is to make Christ so satisfying to your soul that all the other things that want to pull you away from him will look so tiny and unappealing. You see, we have everything we need in him, everything we need to know, so that God will become so excellent. 
But for that to happen, Jesus needs to become this awesome and glorious reality. John Piper says this about beholding. This means that beholding the glory of the Lord involves a change of heart, a change of desires and preferences so that the Lord is seen not just as true, but also as precious, beautiful, valuable, desirable, satisfying, the greatest treasure one could ever want. If the eyes of our heart still see him as boring, inferior, unattractive, or unreal, we are not beholding the glory of the Lord as Paul means it. You see, what happens when you behold Christ this way, in a worshiping way, is that a lot of things that you thought were really important for you or dramatic for you become suddenly just so insignificant, so tiny. But you can't experience that unless you worship unless you put your heart into a position of surrender where you focus on Jesus. I can't do that for you, but the grace of God can come to the rescue. I want to encourage you to tap into that grace. Ask the Spirit of God to make all these truths that you read in the Scriptures real to you. Someone has said that praying is letting the mind descend into the heart. This is what praying does to you. But... It can't happen if you don't have anything in your mind. (laughs) So you need to fill your mind with truths. You need to fill your mind with the Word of God, with what God is. And as you do that, the Spirit of God helps you make your mind descend into your heart and renew your affection for Jesus, your passion for Jesus, so that you stay on track and you avoid neglect and you avoid drifting away. The real call here for us this morning is to worship. Worship is glorifying God with your whole being. In worship, you are declaring this morning, Christ, you are greater, greater than anything else in my life. And whatever challenge you are facing today, you have to tell yourself, Christ is greater. Whatever is always pulling you back into sin, into that thing that you hate, you have to tell that thing, Christ is greater. Whatever reality you're in right now, whether that's a sickness or a temptation, an addiction, uh, a difficult relationship, you have to tell that thing, Christ is greater. You can't wait for that thing to go away before you tell it, Christ is greater. You have to choose this morning, Christ is greater than all these things that are challenging to me. You know, glory can be described as something heavy that's weighing on us. And that's the glory of God. That's what it does to us. It weighs on us. And the thing is, like, sometimes we're pulled down by the reality in our worlds. But as you experience the glory of Christ in worship, you realize this is the reality that should be heaviest, the heaviest in my life, the glory of Jesus Christ. Can I encourage us this morning to stand up to our feet and, and respond to God's word by worshiping and gazing upon Jesus and declaring that he is greater than anything else. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.